1: Granger, for the ones who get it done. You know, sitting for a portrait in the 19th century is not an easy thing. It takes a long time. And then, so you're going to tend to talk to your artist while you're doing this. And this happens to Lincoln with a painter, Francis Carpenter, his painter. He has a talk with Lincoln. And he records what Lincoln says. And because of that, we may know a little bit about the events surrounding the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln shocks most of his cabinet on July 22nd, 1862, the second year of the Civil War, when he rises and says to the members he's thinking of, and he's prepared a draft of a proclamation that would free all of the slaves in the Confederate states. What's more, he did not call the cabinet together for advice, but rather to lay the draft before them. Now there's various accounts. Secretary Chase, who was more radical on abolition than Lincoln had been, is astonished and... He at first uh, says, uh, well, there there's certain things he'd like it to go farther. For instance, if you're going to emancipate slaves, he wants to see that the owners are not compensated. That's his position on it. But then, according to Secretary War Stanton, who's in the room, Chase has some second thoughts about issuing this proclamation. He he actually says to Lincoln, it goes farther than anything I've recommended. For Secretary of State Seward, he supports... This proclamation, but he does ask Lincoln to consider foreign reaction. Might France and England intervene because of the cotton crop to preserve the cotton crop they need? But the painter, Francis Carpenter, also has it, uh, has Seward saying something else. He says, If you issue it now, we just had the Peninsula campaign, it was unsuccessful. McClellan's attempt to take Richmond, beaten back. You issue it now, it might be seen as the last measure of a desperate government. So it says, why don't you wait until there's a military victory? And then you can hang the proclamation on the American Eagle. Other, you know, cabinet members react differently. Some are really in support of this proclamation. Attorney General Blair, who's not there, is concerned about the midterms, expresses that later. Midterms in 1862 are coming up. But according to Carpenter, it struck, uh, Seward's advice struck Lincoln with great force. He does just what Seward advises. He waits for victory. Well, really kind of a half victory, with at least the Confederate forces being pushed back, pushed out of Maryland, and retreating the field at Antietam, even if it was at the cost of great Union life. So rather than issuing the proclamation in July... He issues it in September, after Antietam, and has it take effect January 1st, 1863. I'm going to read from that proclamation. Whereas on the 22nd day of September, in the year of our Lord, 1862... A proclamation was issued by the President of the United States containing, among other things, the following to wit, that on the first day of January, in the year of our Lord 1863, all persons held as slaves, within any state, or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then thenceforth and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons. And will do no acts or repress such persons or any of them in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. Now, picture that instead of me reading this to you, I'm writing it, you're seeing it. I'm going to put a yellow highlight on certain words here, and these words are right now will be forever free. Let's remember that. Continue. That the executive will, on the first day of January, aforesaid by proclamation, designate the states and parts of states, if any, in which the people thereof respectively shall then be in rebellion against the United States, and the fact that any state or the people thereof shall on that day be in good faith, Represented in the Congress of the United States by members chosen thereto at elections wherein a majority of the qualified voters of such state shall have participated, shall, in the absence of strong countervailing testimony, be deemed conclusive evidence that such state and the people thereof are not then in rebellion against the United States. Okay? So he's slamming the gauntlet down, but he's also saying there's a way out here. Continues. Now, therefore, I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States by virtue of the power in me vested as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, in time of actual armed rebellion against the authority and government of the United States, and as a fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion do. On this first day of January in the year of our Lord, 1863, and in accordance with my purpose to do so publicly, proclaim for the full period of 100 days, from the day first above mentioned, order and designate as the states and parts of the states wherein the people thereof respectively are in this day in rebellion against the United States, the following to wit. Now. My yellow highlight marker is out again, and I'm going to highlight the words, necessary war measure, because it's important. Now, here's the regions that he's saying are in rebellion. Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, except certain parishes, Jefferson, New Orleans, areas around New Orleans. Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia, except the 48 counties designated to West Virginia, and also the counties of Berkeley, the comic Northampton, Elizabeth City, York, Princess Anne, and Norfolk, including the cities of Norfolk and Portsmouth, and which accepted parts are for the present, left precisely as if this proclamation were not issued. Yellow highlight out on that, on the words, For the Present and which the accepted parts are for the present left precisely as if this proclamation were not issued. And by virtue of the power, and for the purpose aforesaid, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are, henceforth shall be free, and that the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authorities thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of said persons. He adds a note now that isn't the celebrated part of this proclamation and not one you hear about much, but it's in there. And I hereby enjoin upon the people so declared to be free to abstain from all violence unless in necessary self-defense. And I recommend to them that in all cases when allowed, they labor faithfully for reasonable wages. And I further declare and make known that such persons of suitable condition will be received into the armed service of the United States to garrison forts, positions, stations, and other places, and to man vessels of all sorts in said service. Okay, another important line there. Um, this is added to the proclamation, not in September, but in the January final proclamation that is issued. Notice that among the many things, first of all, the word garrison, this is a 1863 focus test group word. (laughs) It is, uh, you know, we're no focus groups, but in other words, it's a word that sounds good to some Northerners who are on the fence about emancipation. But like the fact that we need military relief, Um, the garrison word is something that a lot of governors who otherwise don't support abolition can get behind. Notice among all the things listed, there's not yet combat. It's garrison, positions, stations, other places, man-vessels. And upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity, highlight there, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God. Okay, now, You've got a lot of reaction. Hurrah for old Abe, says Benjamin Wade, who's not always a fan of the reticent President Lincoln as he he sees it. Frederick Douglass says, it's the greatest event in our nation's history. William Lloyd Garrison, the most foremost abolitionist, said it's a great historic event, sublime in its magnitude and beneficent in its far-reaching consequences. The ambassador to Great Britain, Charles Francis Adams, says that now this annihilates all agitation for recognition in Great Britain. Uh, Reactions going to obviously be less so in people in the North who don't uh, agree with emancipation. The Cincinnati Inquirer said that the proclamation represented the complete overthrow of the Constitution that Lincoln swore to protect and defend. Obviously, Jefferson Davis was no fan. Among other things, he calls it a gesture of impotent rage. In other words, the Union's losing the war, and this is a desperate measure that's going to lead to more lives lost. This is a common argument that you're going to hear in the South that all you're doing is giving people a vain hope that they should be rebelling. We're going to have to put that revolution down, and you're literally signing the death warrants of slaves across the Confederacy. P.G.T. Beauregard, Confederate general, calls for the execution of abolitionist prisoners to meet this Emancipation Proclamation. Let the execution be made with the Garrett, he says.
0: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: Now, despite that, there are still some people up north who support emancipation and abolition who don't like the message. Uh, Here's from the Commonwealth newspaper. Whatever we looked for. We certainly have got a very awkward and wiry proclamation. It must have required considerable ingenuity to give two and a half millions of human beings the priceless boon of liberty in such a cold, ungraceful way. The heart of the country was anticipating something warm and earnest. One could scarcely imagine that the herald of so blessed a dawn should have caught none of its glow. Instead of an embrace, we had a gruff stay where you are Mr. Lincoln does indeed call it an act of justice, but if he had been in a dentist's chair, he could not have made a worse face as it was extracted from him. On the other hand, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the poet, liked Lincoln's political skill. The extreme moderation, with the president advanced to his design, his long-avowed expectant policy as he chose to be strictly the executive of best public sentiment of the country, waiting only till it shall be unmistakably pronounced, so fair a mind that none ever listened so patiently to such extreme varieties of opinion, so reticent that his decision has taken all parties by surprise, whilst it is just a sequel of his prior acts. The firm tone in which he announces it, without inflation or surplusage, All of these have bespoken such favor to the act. Great as the popularity of the president has been, we are beginning to think that we have underestimated the capacity and virtue which the divine providence has made an instrument of benefit so vast. Uh, Frederick Douglass, too, talks about this. The proclamation itself was throughout like Mr. Lincoln. It was framed with a view to the least harm and the most possible good in the circumstances, and with a special consideration of the latter. It was thoughtful, cautious, and well-guarded at all points. While he hated slavery and really desired its destruction, he always proceeded against it in a manner the least likely to shock or drive him from any who were truly in sympathy with the preservation of the Union, but who were not friendly to emancipation. That's a political reaction. There's also a reaction that's somewhat mixed from legal scholars. In other words, can he do this? Uh, and, and it's mixed in the North. The issue is the Emancipation Proclamation applies to Confederate areas. It does not apply to border states, where, such as Delaware, Kentucky, Missouri, and Maryland, where there's slavery. But military law, according to one Northern judge, martial law can only suspend the law in an area. You can't make new laws. Another former Supreme Court Justice, Benjamin Curtis, who is against slavery, says that a proclamation cannot make law and it cannot repeal law. The president doesn't have that power. So, what you're actually seeing is that there's a possibility that if nothing else happens, and things will happen through the course of the war, but if nothing else were to happen but this Emancipation Proclamation, there's even the possibility that the Union will be restored, and so will slavery as it existed before the emergency. This is something that Lincoln considers himself because he suggests a number of amendments to the Constitution that Congress should pass, and one of them, he suggests, is to constitutionalize to make an amendment that makes his proclamation have legal force. Okay, now, why am I talking about the emancipation today? Uh, We've got a question from Terry O'Toole. On one of your recent casts, I thought I heard you say that the reason Abraham Lincoln issued The Emancipation Proclamation was to repurpose the Union cause to make it more about ending slavery than resisting rebellion. If I heard that correctly or inferred it, can you elaborate on your reasons for so believing? I always thought that the primary purpose of the Emancipation Proclamation was to liberate slaves so they could join Union forces in some capacity. And at the same time, deal a severe economic blow to the South by eliminating an important part of the South's economic base. The Emancipation Proclamation was not a declaration against slavery simply because it did not apply to slave states like Missouri, which are not ceded. Is that incorrect? He has more questions, which I'll address in a bit, but we'll stay on that emancipation for a bit. Yeah, I don't remember the specific episode, but it kind of sounds like me. I do think to some extent here in July of 1862, as he's approaching his cabinet, Lincoln is hitting the reset button on the war, you know just like in so many wars, the initial enthusiasm that happens in the beginning where states are sending lots of recruits down and governors are real excited about the Union cause, you know, is dwindling a bit and he's looking for something else. And also, I believe, he wants to have those military effects. Now, a couple notes just in the text of the document that some of the things that I highlighted, I'd like to point out a few things. One, yes, he does, in the text of it, label it a necessary war measure and that's how he justifies it perhaps politically military necessity uh, obviously you're crippling an opponent that's fighting you your if your view which was always the way Lincoln presented it that these are states in rebellion or areas in rebellion where forces beyond the control of the legal force of the United States have the power You're going to do what you can to upset that and use the weapons that you have. Notice, though, that I also highlighted two items. One is forever free. So in addition to this being a very dry, you know, you 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 sympathize a little with that guy that said that it was like Lincoln was in a, a dentist chair, right? It's not a work of poetry. But there is a little magic, if you will, there, a little bit of thinking outside the box. He's saying forever free. That goes beyond the military necessity, even if it's justified as a war measure. He's not going to put them back into slavery, the people that in this proclamation he's announcing are forever free. Okay. The other thing I note is that when he lists all of those areas that are accepted from the um, Emancipation Proclamation, in other words, you take an area like Missouri or Kentucky, he, he says, at the present, they will be treated as if this Emancipation Proclamation was not issued. Well, why does he even have to put that in there, at the present? Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges
0: from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to
1: you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. So there's thing, there's hints in the document, but I really think to answer this question is the, the one thing is just to look at Subtext rather than text, the context. It was a dramatic, radical proposal for the time, for 1862. That's not to say that there wasn't pressure to do it, but that pressure was coming from like one group of the Union coalition that was keeping Abraham Lincoln in power, that was keeping the war going. Not all of the groups. Horace Greeley. Uh, in August challenges the president with an article called The Prayer of 20 Millions. And he says, why are you listening to these fossil politicians in the border states? Why don't you listen to the bulk of the union who want this? Why don't you, you know, argue for her? Why don't you, why don't we fight for emancipation? And, you know, what's your plan for the war? Why aren't you using the executive power? And Horace Greeley's like all the cable networks in one at this time. So he's really important voice. And Lincoln, Answers him. Of course, Greeley prints the response and he says, I would save the Union. And if I could save the Union by freeing the slaves, I'll do it. And if I could save the Union by not freeing the slaves, I would do it. That quote has been retained through history. You probably heard that in high school. Um, and because of that quote, I think there might be a slightly off picture of where Lincoln's mindset is and and how Lincoln truly felt that is drawn from that statement in response to Horace Greeley. Horace Greeley himself feels that he got the response too quickly, as if it was like prepared by the president just waiting for Greeley to say something. But we also know that he had already told his cabinet about the Emancipation Proclamation he was planning. And so the response to Greeley, even though it offers those two options, freeing the slaves, not freeing the slaves... He had already decided on a course by all accounts before he even answers Greeley, and then he issues it the next month in September after the Battle of Antietam. The other thing to consider here is where is Lincoln's mindset like, What did Lincoln really want and to kind of separate the politician from the person and Lincoln says to friends you know if if slavery is wrong, nothing is wrong." He says this before. He's president. He also says that a house divided against itself will not stand, that the country can't remain permanently half slave and half free. This is the whole reason he engages in those debates with Stephen Douglas about slavery. And Stephen Douglas's argument is, why can't it? Why can't states decide? And Lincoln is absolutely committed that at least in the new territories of the United States, there will not be slavery permitted. However, he's pragmatic. He even goes as far as to propose a 13th amendment, but not the 13th amendment. We know it's a 13th amendment. As he's coming into office, Republicans support and Congress passes a 13th amendment that would prevent the emancipation of slaves in the deep south. Not permanently, but a very long time. So it's um I believe it's 1900 or something like that. He's willing to go that far as long as slavery doesn't go into the new territories. But I think, and I believe Southerners would be the first to point out, that if you're against slavery in the territories, you're against the growth of slavery. And that's where Lincoln is putting himself. Some other things to to note about uh, Lincoln and his course on things. He's very concerned about Kentucky. That's where he was born. That's where his in-laws are from. He has seen that Kentucky's right on the edge. Northern abolitionists just hate the fact that Lincoln's so concerned with Kentucky. By the time you're getting to the Emancipation Proclamation, Kentucky's starting to get into union control and not to be as much of a practical worry. Publicans do outlaw slavery in the District of Columbia. This has been a very contentious issue. And for the South, it's very important. It's going to be a little more important than it seems. I'll talk about it in a bit. You know, it seems like a small area, but it has influence. So this is the one area where Congress can actually influence it, and they do. Also, it's the only area, as it turned out, where a compensation scheme will work, where actually slave owners are compensated for the emancipation. He also attempts to do this during his presidential term in Delaware. He is not successful. He even has the support of the largest slave owner in Delaware. Delaware doesn't have that many slaves, something like a thousand. It's a small state. The legislature will not go along. It will not, does not want the influence of the federal government. Finally, just two years from the release of the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln will call for and eventually get, using the strong powers of his office, a 13th Amendment banning slavery in the United States. And whenever something happens, we we often don't look at the counterfactual, and we should to understand truly the significance of it. That 13th Amendment banning slavery in the United States does not, does no longer exempt Kentucky, Delaware, Missouri, anything like that. It's the entire United States now. So he's not, there's no thought in his mind with that 13th Amendment of rewarding states that stayed in the Union anymore. So you get the sense of where he went, at least, if the future is any indication of the past, you know, in that way. I guess I'll close with a, a little bit. This is how Frederick Douglass, and he's writing in 1892, what he says about the difference between, like, the language of the proclamation and what it really meant or what it was doing. For my own part, I took the proclamation first and last for a little more than it purported and saw in its spirit a life and power far beyond its letter. Its meaning to me was the entire abolition of slavery, wherever the evil could be reached by the federal arm, and I saw its moral power would extend much further. It was, in my estimation, an immense gain to have the War for the Union committed to the extinction of slavery, even from a military necessity. It is not a bad thing to have the individuals or nations do right, though they do so from selfish motives. I want to read a little book from a book called uh, The South vs. the South. I like this book. Uh, William W. Freeling, who talks about how the South really fought itself in the Civil War when you consider Southern Unionists, when you consider uh, Border State Unionists, and when you consider um, freed slaves and others who contributed, um, that it was it was almost half the South fighting another half of the South and the Union, etc. It's kind of his thesis. is maybe summing up too much. He notes that in addition to these kind of general political or celebratory reactions to the Emancipation Proclamation, there were real practical effects that belie that argument that because emancipation affected the Confederate states, that had no effect. One thing you have to consider, and should always be considered, is that to some degree the slaves in the South freed themselves. Now maybe... The fact that the Union Army was entering the South and that a defense had to be put up and people were leaving plantations, white males were leaving the plantation that otherwise would be overseeing them. They had the ability to run, but they were running. And they're in many cases running towards Union lines. And there would be different reactions depending on what general that was. Some turned them away. Fremont uh, over in Missouri declared that uh, Missouri was to be emancipated. And that was overturned by Lincoln before he issued the E.P., Same thing with a General Hunter in South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. His order for emancipation was also reversed. But Benjamin Butler had devised a way of seizing slaves in the area under his control in Louisiana as contraband. See, and then it didn't sound as bad. But you were still kind of, in a way, replacing one owner for the other. The slave owner is now the federal government you had a lot of action around this time. Once it is announced in January 1st, 1863, you also have to consider the impact that it had because Lincoln adds something to that. And that is the verbiage allowing blacks, former slaves, into the Union Army. And that affected the border states as well in an indirect way. Lincoln deployed more federal patronage than even secessionists had envisioned. Here again, the Army gave the Commander-in-Chief his allegedly missing anti-slavery weapons. The new troop recruiting business far outstripped the previously bigger federal business, the post office. Republicans who sympathized with voluntary state emancipation were given the appointment of Marshal Provost for recruiting. In the borderlands, uh, before the war, half of Maryland's blacks had been freed. Washington, D.C. beckoned the other half. In other words, we talked about that earlier, Washington, D.C. became free of slavery. Well, it obviously became a magnet for those running away because you created a place where they could run to. Army camps and army recruiters attracted and sometimes seized runaways with increasingly invasive procedures after mid-1863. Then in 1864, with the administration feeding patronage to white politicians of the Republican stripe, the staggering institution collapsed. In November 1864, Maryland became an exclusively free labor state. Missouri whites wiped out their last shred of slavery two months later. In Kentucky... 40% of Kentucky's able-bodied male slaves served in the Union Army. These 24,052 black Kentuckians ranked second in number, only barely to Louisianans among Union Southern black recruits. Kentucky's black soldiers freed not only themselves, but also, eventually, their wives and children. Freeling points out something else that's interesting. Delaware kept its handful of slaves. Why? Because the Union Army never occupied this almost totally Unionist state. The seemingly odd holdout of Delaware, the least in state, the least in slave states, reemphasizes the critical point. An attracting army and cautious runaways together secured abolition, fugitive state, together secured abolition, fugitive slave style, whether in the Mississippi Valley or in the borderlands.